Since it was shot in Southern California, the crew had to buy paper leaves from a decorator. They painted these paper leaves various autumn colors like red, brown, and yellow and scattered them across scenes, but they didn't have the budget for like huge amounts of them. So every time they shot a scene, they would have to sweep them up and gather them to use them for the next scene. So <laughs> all, of the, all of the leaves you see on the ground, on the streets, on the sidewalks, and on the, on the yards of the houses, those are all actually paper leaves that they painted. Happy Halloween, movie friends. Welcome back to another episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today, we are breaking down the most iconic Halloween movie there is, John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. Do you think it's the most iconic horror movie of all time, not just Halloween movie? I don't. What do you think is more iconic? I think the the Shining and Exorcist are more iconic than Halloween is. It's top five all time. Oh, for for sure. sure. Yeah, it's top five all time. It's so memorable. And the thing with it is it's wildly successful because it's now got 13 movies in its universe. It was like 30 movies. It's insane how successful this franchise has become just off this independent film from 1978. And IMDb, it's a 7.7. Rotten Tomatoes, it's a 96% critic score, 89% audience score. Letterboxd, it's a 3.8. Budget of $325,000. It grossed $70 million back in 1978. Now, I adjusted that for inflation. So the budget, according to now and today's standards, would have been $1.4 million. And the gross at the box office would have been $330 million. That's an insane profit. And then factor in rentals, DVD sales, VHS sales. Holy shit. Merchandise? This is a, this, did this movie earn a billion dollars? At least, at least. But it has to be one of the most iconic when it comes to Halloween and, and horror movies because of how many people dress up as Mike Myers for Halloween for the last 40 years. It's absolutely insane. He's still that much in the zeitgeist of culture. 45 years later, they're still making movies about him. We just got the the rights to Halloween was purchased by, what was it, uh, Miramax to make a whole verse of movies and TV shows for Mike Myers. And I'm guessing they're going to do Season of the Witch with spinoffs because that was more of like an anthology of shorts. And they'll get the cult in there as well. There was a cult in the third one. Was it, oh, yeah, so the, the Druids. The Druids? Yeah, the Druid cult. Is that what it's called? And they are bringing back the Thorn Demon. Sounds yeah, cool, the killer man. of parents. Or Sounds something. cool, man. It's all I can barely remember it, but we we grew up watching these and uh, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Chucky. Uh, they were staples in our household in the in the horror genre, and and they were icons that I was terrified of as a kid. Those were when you're growing down the hallways of the video stores and blockbusters. You see the DVD cases in the horror section of those horror icons. Always afraid of them. But Michael Myers is he's got to be up there with Ghostface as the most iconic slasher. I think he has the edge over Freddy and Jason uh, because I think ultimately all around the films are better for the most part than the Friday the 13th movies. And most of the Freddy movies are kind of pretty bad, but some of them are very good, especially the first and third ones. But I think Halloween has enough good entries to really edge it out. And then for slashers, it's up there with Ghostface, I think. Yeah, right now I feel like Ghostface has the edge because the Gen Zs love the new Scream franchise. The last Halloween reboot, the third reboot this century, or was it the fourth reboot this century? Of of Scream? No, of, of Halloween. Of Halloween. Third reboot this century because the Halloween... Rob Zombie did it in the 2000s. 2007. And, and then, then 2009. And then for David Halloween, Gordon Halloween Green. Two, then David Gordon Green. But there was Halloween H20 in 2000, right? Was that 2000 or 1999? I can't remember. It might have been 1999 or something Maybe. like that. But there had to have been like Halloween 5, right? 
Yes. What year is that? Yeah. So there's, there's been three versions of the Halloween franchise this yeah, century. Yeah, there's actually just been like, it's been different timelines and stuff. It hasn't all been cohesive and all one thread of a storyline. Yeah. Like uh, some have taken the route of Laurie is related familiarly to Michael Myers, which obviously the first film, there's no hint of that at all. But the second film when they were writing the sequel, Deborah Hill and uh, John Carpenter, they came up with that great twist. Obviously, I'm spoiling a movie from 1981. Sorry where Laurie is the sister of Mike Myers. That wasn't originally planned, but they came up with that. And fun fun fact, for the release of Halloween on TV, the movie wasn't long enough for the TV spot that whatever station bought the rights to it. They're like, we need more footage to hit this time slot for our ad revenue for, That's what they do. for commercials. So John Carpenter actually shot scenes of Michael Myers in the mental institution. And he put them into the into Halloween for the TV airing of Halloween. Oh, that's right. And didn't they shoot other scenes of Dr. Loomis yes. as well as a couple scenes with Laurie and her sisters? I think even young Mike Myers in the mental institution, right? So it was all, it all tied to Laurie. And because they made the connection through the sequel, they had the idea, oh, what if they're brother and sister? And then the Myers parents passed away only a couple of years after Michael got sent to the institution. And their other ba- their baby, Laurie, was raised in foster care. And so they came up with that idea for the sequel, but then they're like, why don't we just make scenes for that in the first film upon its television release? So it's in the TV release version of Halloween. I don't think it works. I think it works. The film works perfectly as it is, but they needed to fill in, I think, another like 10, 15 minutes of runtime for the time slot on TV. And they drew the original out as long (laughs) as they could. I love how, so a great fact about this movie, super low budget again. The screenplay was written in less than two weeks, according to everyone involved, and then the production only took 20 days, 22 days. So a super fast turnaround, low budget, and then when you watch the movie, the script's, what, seven pages long because half of it is just slow walking, which I love. It worked so well, like this voyeuristic POV stalking filmmaking style using a relatively new piece of technology in 1978, the Panaglide Steadicam, which... Obviously, Steadicam was more reinvented and more precise for something in The Shining in 1980. Later on, that was an independent invention. I can't remember the guy's name who made that. But Panavision made the Panaglide Steadicam system, which worked really well. And this was only the fourth film to use that new piece of technology at the time. So, But I think that's one of the great strengths of this film is this voyeuristic POV following, stalking, even the camera following characters. But it adds so much runtime to what I'm sure was a very short script. And it doesn't work as a detriment because what Carpenter did with the film was he created a great tone and a great mood through the music. And the music is really what sells it. And even uh, one of the producers of the film said that the studio exec who ran the studio at the time when they saw the first cut of the film without music, they're like, it's not scary at all. But then when they watched it upon a screener with the music, they're like, that was horrifying. And the music really added that to it. Those walking scenes wouldn't work if it wasn't for that piano theme and that synth score that John Carpenter brilliantly wrote. And it's all about setting up the tone and the feeling for the film. So even though, yes, there's a, there is a shit ton of walking in this movie, just people walking, but it you're feeling the dread and you're feeling the suspense and you're just waiting, waiting for something to happen. And I think it works really well. I think that you don't need to know much more about the characters. We don't need other scenes because we get those... That kind of stuff in the remakes and the sequels is just like more character stuff and most of the time it doesn't really work. Whereas this movie just really takes its time, stretches out the suspense, and 
Carpenter sticks to the idea that less is more, and it works for the better. And it's almost real time. I mean, this whole movie takes place over the course of just one day, Halloween in 1978, versus obviously when uh, Michael in the opening kills his sister. That's 1963, so we're 15 years later. It's just one day. It's just Halloween that day in uh, Haddonfield, I, uh, Illinois. Hanfield, Illinois. You mean uh, Southern California? Southern Pasadena. <laughs> actually, this movie was entirely shot in Los Angeles in neighborhoods that we live near, so South Pasadena, Alhambra, Altadena. And actually, the budget was so low for this film that all of the car license plates still say California. They're still California plates. And you can actually see some palm trees in a couple of shots. And all the foliage, foliage if you look, it's still green because the only a small number of trees actually change in color in California. And uh, since it was shot in Southern California... The crew had to buy paper leaves from a decorator and then paint them various colors. Because <laughs> they didn't have yeah. any foliage. So they painted these paper leaves various autumn colors like red, brown, and yellow and scattered them across scenes. But they didn't have the budget for like huge amounts of them. So every time they shot a scene, they would have to sweep them up and gather them to use them for the next scene. So <laughs> all, of the, all of the leaves you see on the ground, on the streets, on the sidewalks, and on the, on the yards of the houses... Those are all actually paper leaves that they painted. That's pretty amazing. Again, and I read somewhere that Robert England was obviously friends with John Carpenter at oh, the wow. time, and he had him on set throwing leaves around for some of the scene <laughs> decoration. But it's really clever. And I mean, staying on that low budget, again, John Carpenter did the music because the budget was so low, and Anthony talked about how he made that music, and he only did it, he said, in three days it took him to compose and record the entire score for the film. And the Halloween theme has become one of the most recognizable musical themes in horror cinema for all time. That's It's so iconic, and like Anthony said, it makes the movie. It brings the, the scariness, the mood, like the, the synths and just the eerie tones that he has. And then with the jump scares with the loud music, it was so effective at the time and still, still works. And Carver said that he came up with that Halloween theme in an hour. Just an hour he came up with that. And critic James... Berardinelli calls the score relatively simple and unsophisticated, but admits that the Halloween's music is one of its strongest assets. And Carpenter stated in an interview, I can play just about any keyboard, but I can't read or write a note. And then in Halloween's end credits, Carpenter billed himself as the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra, <laughs> but also received assistance from composer Dan Wyman, a music professor at San Jose State University. I mean, Jaws is the most simple theme there is, and it's one of the most effective themes. So it has nothing to do with complexity to make sure that to, to define a, a theme or a composition as great. So it's really all about how it works within the film, and just like Jaws in its simplicity works perfectly for the shark. It's like Nirvana with Smells Like Teen Spirits, yes. four chords. Yeah, exactly. But it's so, it was ch changed music. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, there, was not, there was before Nirvana, then after Nirvana for it rock really and roll. It really was, absolutely. And then this film. I just remember as a kid, like that, the sound of this music, it just means horror and it means death in a way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And Carpenter has composed a lot of the music. I mean, uh, the film before he made this one was Assault on Precinct 13, and he made the music for that film as well as writing and directing it. So this was actually his third film. He was making very low budget movies and a couple of action movies. Assault on Precinct 13 actually starred Kurt Russell. It was their first collaboration um, together. The year before, two years before that, he made Dark Star. So. Those were his first feature films. This was his third feature film. It's a pretty decent remake of Assault on Precinct 13 starring Handsome Hawk and uh, Larry Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne, right? Yeah, it's very good. I like <laughs> it. And uh, Maria Bello. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's do a quick synopsis of Halloween. And we know everyone listening to this has probably seen this movie. It's, again, the most iconic horror movie of all time. You know, probably. James loves the synopsis. I love though. On a cold Halloween <laughs> night. In 1963, six-year-old Michael Myers brutally murdered his 17-year-old sister, Judith. 
He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred for a court date, a 21-year-old Michael Myers steals a car and escapes Smith's Grove. He returns to his quiet home of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims. I gotta say, the opening of Halloween is really what's so defining for the film. It's, in my opinion, the opening POV long take is one of the best shots in horror history. If not, it could be the greatest shot ever done in horror. It's so effective. It's so brilliant. This really great long take. POV, we start with voyeurism. Like sp- spying on the residents of the home from outside. We think it's a killer, and I'm sure for people who saw the trailer and poster, they think that's Michael Myers. And little do we know it ends up being six-year-old Michael Myers, a little kid. Uh, but to see um, the perspective of a killer, of a serial killer, and watching them stalk their prey and then kill their prey, also the POV of the murder actually carrying... its I mean, it takes us a step further from Psycho where... We're holding the knife now. Now the audience is holding the knife. It's not just seeing someone getting stabbed uh, in such close quarters and intimacy, but we're actually, as a way, because of the POV subjective, we are taking part in the killing. And that's something that I just think is just such a brilliant concept, and John Carpenter executed it really perfectly. They shot it in one night, and they wanted to do some more takes, but they actually ran out of time because uh, the sun was rising. But it's just a really impressive shot and sets the stage for the film. Because after that opening, you're like, I am all gears ahead. Just like, let's go. What's going to happen in this movie? It's really iconic. It's four minutes and 11 seconds. Wow. It's really well done. You know, starting pushing into the house, creeping around the bushes on the side, looking in the window at the boy and the girl, ready to go upstairs and have a quickie before the boy has to go home. Very quick quickie. <laughs> he <laughs> like walks out of that hey. house like a like I'm a man, but it's like, dude. Bro, we were 16 once. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> but like you said, it's really well done. And then not even just, not to mention holding the knife, the POV of the knife, but putting the mask on, the lens and everything like that. It's so clever and it works so well. It really puts you in the shoes of Michael. But even before that long take, we have another long take, the opening title credit sequence oh, yeah. of the jack-o'-lantern, where it's just a slow camera pushing in with the left side of the screen is being filled in with this jack-o'-lantern that's lit up, obviously, with a candle on the inside and all the credits and the names and production info is on the right until the camera's really pushing in and the pumpkin is half off screen, and all we have are the flickering, like, evil eyes of they a jack-o'-lantern, and then the jack-o'-lanterns, the candle gets blown out, the light is off, and then we just have Halloween. It's awesome. It's brilliant. It's great. It's, I mean, it's a two-minute credit roll, but I just love watching it. It's entertaining as hell. Yeah, it's just a pumpkin lit up, but it's fucking awesome. And the, in a room that's just completely blacked out. The title font is just perfection. It's, it's such a great title um, sequence, and... Uh, the design of that font and the coloring, it just, plus the title of the movie, it's just, everything just works. So, some movies, all the pieces come together uh, to create something that is just lightning in a bottle. And I think, I really do think Halloween is one of those movies where it was just this mad dash kind of effort kind of strung, strung together in a matter of a, a month or so. But somehow, all these pieces, they fit together perfectly and they made something legendary. And I got a little info on, obviously, the story and screenplay, which I can't wait to talk about. So, there's a myth and kind of common misconception that the original title for this movie was The Babysitter Murders. This is a myth which was confirmed to be untrue by the producer of the movie, 
Erwin Yoblin. So after viewing Carpenter's film Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976 at the Milan Film Festival, independent film producer Erwin Yoblins and financier Mustafa Akkad sought out Carpenter to direct a film for them about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters. So they had an idea of like, we want to make a horror movie about babysitter, babysitter killers. In an interview with Fangoria magazine, Yoblin stated, I was thinking that would make sense in the horror genre. And what I wanted to do was make a picture that had the same impact as The Exorcist. Carpenter agreed to direct the film contingent on his having full creative control and was paid $10,000 for his work, which included writing, directing, and eventually scoring the film. I hope he got some back end. <laughs> I'm sure he did, a couple <laughs> points for sure. He and his then girlfriend, Deborah Hill, began drafting the story for Halloween. There is an urban myth that the film at one point was supposed to be called The Babysitter Murders, but Yoblins has since debunked that, stating that it was always intended to be called and take place on Halloween. Halloween. Carpenter said of the basic concept, Halloween night has never been this it's never been the theme in the film. My idea it was just a haunted house film that happened to take place on Halloween. And so he and Hill, who worked together on this screenplay they used to date actually so they dated for a while and deborah hill is also credited as producer of this and a co-writer on many of jordan carpenter's films hold on let me pull up her info that i have for her give me one second so she was also john carpenter's girlfriend at the time an eventual frequent collaborator and friend she also wrote and co-wrote the fog escape from new york and escape from la and they also wrote and produced halloween 2 together Hill helped support talent in the film industry throughout her career, and a number of Hill's associates went on to later success in film. For example, James Cameron, the filmmaker, that guy, once worked for Deborah Hill in the visual effects departments of her production companies. Unfortunately, Hill passed away in 2005. After her death, Carpenter told the Associated Press that working with Hill was one of the greatest experiences of my life. She had a passion for not just movies and about women, or women's ideas, but films for everybody. And when they wrote the screenplay, Deborah Hill did all the dialogue for the female characters. She worked as a babysitter in her youth, so she had a lot of experience with that. While Carpenter drafted Loomis's speeches on the soullessness of Michael Myers. I like how Lori points out the motivation of her friend being a babysitter is just a place to get, hook up with her boyfriend. <laughs> and there's another misconception, and it's something I grew up thinking about this film and thinking about Michael Myers' motivation is that he didn't he he didn't like teens having sex. That's something I always thought motivated his kills. However, Carpenter and Hill have stated many times over the years that they did not consciously set out to depict virginity as a way of defeating the rampaging killer or like avoiding his knife. The reason why the horny teens always die is simply because they're too preoccupied with getting laid that they don't notice there's a killer at large. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you compare to Lori, Lori's never getting laid and she's always prepared and always fights back. So I thought it was like he was after people who were losing their virginity and, and people who were no longer pure. But it was just a misconception that we heard in through like word of mouth and stuff. The irony that became a horror trope for decades. Yeah. And even pointed out in Scream as a very meta horror film in itself and just pointing out Randy and all of his rules. Like the virgin survives. Who survives in Halloween? Laurie survives. She's yeah. the virgin in the film. Don't have sex. If you have sex, you're going to get killed. Those are really the rules. And obviously you can, of course, associate sex and violence with this movie, teenage sex, young sex. Is Michael, did he kill, like, let's talking about why Michael at six years old killed his sister. Was he jealous of her uh, ha and having a boyfriend and, like, having a relationship? Was she, did he want to spend time with her? 
Was he mad that Lori didn't take him trick-or-treating, which he clearly looks like he didn't get taken out trick-or-treating that night on Halloween? It's a bit of a reaction. <laughs> but I, I think when you look at Mike Myers, and I don't believe anybody's born evil, but when it comes to cinema and movies and characters, I think Michael Myers, just at the end of the day, was just born evil, and it was deep inside of him, was waiting to be unleashed at some point, and this night was just a trigger for many things happening to him, being ignored by his sister, maybe being jealous of him and his, her and his boy, her boyfriend at the time, and that evil gets unleashed and he has to finally lash out. I agree because Loomis even says multiple times that he's not a man, he's, he's just pure evil, and he keeps calling uh, Michael it and that other doctor is like, how about you call him him? He's like, if you prefer. He's like, it's, he's, this isn't a man. This is, this is a monster. So Dr. Loomis understands that uh, Michael Myers has no empathy and he can't be reasoned with or empathized with whatsoever. And he actually he intended that. He wa so Carpenter's intention was to create someone with an intent with the character was that the audience should never be able to relate with him. Ever. And part of that stems from his inability, his lack of dialogue. He doesn't speak. So there's already that disconnect. And he even says, I've been treating him for 15 years. He's never spoken a word. So there's that disconnect. And then the mask is the other disconnect. So in a way, Michael is as far from human as a, a person can be. So I, I totally agree. And, you know, I understand that modern day cinema, we like to empathize with our villains, but some of the most iconic villains you can't empathize with. And there's a reason. It's just because they... It's a representation of evil. It's not a representation of an evil person, but, like, he's evil personified. And I really like that in horror movies. And why, then, does Michael Myers return to Haddonfield, Illinois? You know, why does he drive all these miles to go back there? Obviously, if you have watched all of the movies, or even if you've watched the second one, you know now that they're brother and sister. But when you watch the first film, that wasn't part of it at all. It's never insinuated, and it's just he's going back. And why does he stalk Lori? And he goes back to Haddonfield. I think it's pretty clear. It's the only place he knows. It's the only place he's been thinking of. It's his home. He wants to go back to his home probably. And then why does he kill Lori? Why does he stalk her and her friends? Because she's really the first person he sees, you could say, because he's hiding out inside of his old abandoned home, which was actually abandoned in real life at the time of the making of this movie. And they recreated it, demolished it, and then recreated it again. It's actually in South Pasadena. It's located at 1000 Mission Boulevard. You can actually look it up oh, on Google cool. Maps. It's painted blue now, though, next to a train track. But why does he stalk Lori? She's the first person you could argue he sees who maybe reminds him of his sister. She has to drop off the key. Her father's the realtor. He's trying to sell the Myers home, which obviously no one's going to buy this home. So she, he asked her in the beginning of the film to drop the key off, put it under the front doormat at the Myers residence. Little does she know... Mikey Myers is inside the house looking outside the windows and he sees Lori and from then on he starts to stalk and follow this girl Lori who I just believe he follows her because she looks probably like his sister reminds him of his sister he's gonna go back to Haddonfield he has to kill again and it seems like the thing he wants to do is kill young women. Yeah, and I think it's her stepping onto the porch and having the key is like a connection to his home and so he wants to kill her. So he wants to kill her, and that's why he ends up stalking her. And, I mean, we get a lot of the famous horror tropes is the first time we see them in this movie, like a student being stalked outside of their classroom. Yeah! <laughs> that's, I mean, this is the first time it was done, and now we've seen it done a thousand times. It's become, like, such a cliche, but, I mean, John Carpenter started a lot of the cliches of just, like, Michael Myers just staring at her uh, through the window from across the street. It's even in Hereditary. It's in Hereditary, yeah. <laughs> a lot of horror films have just borrowed from these cliches and... 
archetypes that filmmakers, he's not the only one, filmmakers like John Carpenter uh, basically created. And I also think that um, him coming back to the home also ties to what happens with the finale of the film where when Laurie's going through the home after everybody's been murdered, and it's basically like, it's like a haunted house of finding body after body, you know. She finds her friend's corpse on the bed with the tombstone of Michael's sister on the headboard. Then she finds another friend in the closet hanging upside down, and then another friend in another closet, in the, the towel closet. And so, digging up his sister's grave and then taking the tombstone, you could say that Michael is trying to maybe recreate his sister's death um, through all of this. Um, maybe he's trying to make some connection to that la- that fateful night 15 years ago. I think it all ties to his sister. Um, I don't think that she did anything wrong with him. I don't think that uh, he was upset with her in any way. I just think that he clear- it's just as simple as he wanted to kill her. He just wanted to do it. Uh, but it all ties to the sister. That's why he put the tombstone there. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. And the first time you see this movie, the tombstone's there. Like, holy crap, that is wild. And he's taunting Lori. Like, you could say that... Lori is now the representation of his sister. Exactly. In yeah. a way, he's he's bringing her back to life by bringing the tombstone there and digging up the grave and everything. That's what it feels like to me. He's like taunting Lori, pretending Lori's his sister. I'm going to stalk, haunt her, and kill my sister again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to redo it. I think that's why he does that. Because we got a few DMs about people asking um, about the tombstone. And I think it's kind of a recreation of killing his sister. It's just he wants to do it over and over again. Yeah. It's pretty messed up. Pretty effing messed up. And I love how Michael is, he's just going through town. He's driving around with that mask on. <laughs> but it's the perfect time of year. Yeah. It's like that great uh, sequence in The Office when it's Halloween, one of the Halloween episodes. Creed is like covered in blood and he comes in and they're, they're like, oh, great. Co-. He's like, oh, it's Halloween. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah. So I saw a meme someone posted of a guy driving a truck and who's covered in blood with Michael Myers mask on. And it said like, Halloween is the perfect time to commit a murder. Like, <laughs> no one's going to look it. twice. Exactly. You drive around like that in March, you might get pulled over. Yeah. But it, he just blends in. Like, he can walk around someone's house and just, like, be on their sidewalk covered in this mask. And no one will think twice because there are people dressed up on the other side of the block or across the street. So he blends right in. And also, I, I really like him just driving around. And that him stealing the car is a great sequence. It's a really scary sequence, and we get a great special effect. It's my favorite uh, instance of special effects in the film of when he, he jumps on top of the car, and the nurse is just, like panicking, and then he, he slaps his hand, his palm, onto the side window, and it, it cracks the window. And it, it's just a really great special effect. I'm, I'm, they must have thrown some, like, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea how they did it, honestly. But it's just wonderful seeing that that glass break. It doesn't break, but it it cracks to show his strength. Because the thing with Michael is he has, like, you could say a supernatural power to him. And it could be because he represents evil and evil powers him in a way. That's why he's an unstoppable force. That's why he can, he can, he can lift a man up to by his neck and choke him out. And that's why he can survive several gunshot wounds. And, and in the... They kind of went a little too far with the sequels of he's a little bit too much like a Terminator. Yeah, it's like invulnerable yeah, exactly. to the point where it's like annoying. Sometimes it's laughable and it takes you out of it. But in the first film and a couple of the others, it's done pretty well. Uh, but there is like there, there's got to be some kind of supernatural power going on for him to be able to survive all of this and to keep going. He gets stabbed in the neck. He gets stabbed in the chest. He gets shot. 
several times. Poked in the eye. Poked in the eye. <laughs> that looked like it hurt. Yeah, <laughs> the coat hanger, man. That's the worst one. I cringe at that one. Like, oh, man, not you, the you eye. Okay, hold on. You okay, Mike? <laughs> hey, what'd you do that for? Oh, Lori's like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. Did, did, <laughs> I, okay? get you, did okay. I get you in the eye? <laughs> sorry about that. Oh, man. Should we go to the hospital? Uh, all right. Are you, how about I'll start at the top, stop at the top of the stairs. Start chasing me. Well, let's now, take it from the top. Go, go, go. <laughs> but there is this uh, supernatural um, strength to him that is one of the reasons why he's so legendary, I think. I think it's used so well in this movie, but like you said, it's drawn out too much. He's too much of the supervillain. But in the first one, he's vulnerable. He yeah. does get wounded. Yeah. But having him dis- disappear off the front lawn after four gunshot wounds is awesome because, you know, someone could survive that if they're fueled by pure evil, whether he's possessed by a spirit or whatever it is, or it's just insanity where he doesn't really feel pain because he's so focused on evil deeds and he's just consumed by rage and just wanting to murder. Mm-hmm. Is that where he gets his strength? He's obviously a little taller and stronger than the average person for sure, but to be able to lift somebody up and choke them, like you said, and then stab them onto the wall takes a good amount of strength to do that so yeah. is there some sort of supernatural i like when there's like a like a dash of the supernatural for mike myers but sometimes they go overboard it's a little too much a little, a little too overboard because i remember being a kid watching because we watched i think various times all the sequels at some point and sometimes it's like so ridiculous like how did he survive that yeah and it's just getting a little too outlandish but he's so memorable and I- the culture was affected by this movie and by this character and by this franchise. It's similar to Jaws when people are afraid to go in the water at the beach because Jaws came out in 1975 and it was such a phenomenon, but people were afraid to surf, people were afraid to swim out in the oceans. And I feel like when I was a kid, Mike Myers, it just had that pulse of Halloween night, like look out for Mike Myers out there somewhere. He's walking around, he's stalking, and then you see adults and older kids dressed up as Mike Myers, and you just terrifies a kid walking the streets on yeah. Halloween, trick or treating, or even the night before Halloween. But just I, yeah, that's a great point. I always, I will say, whenever we were kids, we we walked by a Michael Myers guy, I was always just like. Just be ready to run. <laughs> <laughs> that might actually be Mike Myers. Yeah. Like, we got to book it. There's something different about the Michael Myers costume. It's definitely. just some dad who works, like, for the city department, like, laying, Trying down, to scare kids. laying down pipes, and he's just, like, he loves Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I was, you're right. I was always on edge, always on edge around a Michael Myers costume. But not just going out on Halloween and feeling the the aura of Michael Myers around you with just, like, fear, but also the giddiness of trick-or-treating is so much fun. But there's mm. always, like, the back of your head, like, the boogeyman's around. Someone's getting killed tonight. Someone's, <laughs> someone's, get, someone's getting pregnant and someone's getting murdered tonight. Unrelated, hopefully. <laughs> but the same thing with not just that, but, you know, walking around the hallways of your house at night with all the lights off, like looking around the corners, like, is Mike Myers in here? I used to always, like, be afraid of Mike Myers in the house if I'm walking around at night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And his costume and mask are so legendary. I think everybody knows it's, it's a James T. Kirk mask from Star Trek. However, the first choice was a clown mask. So A clown? Yeah, because of the film's tight budget, the production designer, designer Tommy Lee Wallace had to use whatever he had at his disposable. Disposal. <laughs> so he put the mask down the disposal. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and he had to buy materials cheaply. So when he created the Michael Myers mask, he made two versions. The first was a Don Post Emmett Kelly smiling clown mask that they put frizzy red hair on. They tested it out, and it appeared to be very demented and creepy. The other mask that he made was a 1975 Captain James T. Kirk mask from Star Trek that was purchased in a costume shop on Hollywood Boulevard for $1.98. Which is $80,000 Yeah, <laughs> because of inflation, yeah. <laughs> it had the eyebrows and sideburns ripped off. The face was painted bluish-white. 
The hair was spray painted brown and the eyes were opened up more. After testing out that mask, the crew decided that it was much more creepy because it was emotionless and I totally get that. And on top of that, he has the mechanics um, one piece outfit on. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about this earlier, you said that it was sort of almost like you said lightning in a bottle this movie mm -hmm. or would you say something yeah, like that yeah. that's, sort of like, that's exactly what sort I said sort of like how whenever we talk about Gladiator that movie like shouldn't have been as good as it was but yeah. obviously really Scott's the man and they were making that movie as they were writing it and it's just like imagine it's movie magic so many things with this this low budget and then forcing them to get creative and this mask working out not only for the aesthetic of the film but then becoming so iconic and memorable and just to Halloween culture and horror culture who would have thought that taking a William Shatner James T. James T. Kirk mask from Star Trek spray painting it white and ripping the eyebrows off would make the most iconic horror icons look of all time so iconic it's in, I guess I'm saying <laughs> iconic but it's just, it's just crazy like, well because that's a great point because if they had a big budget he probably never would have thought to go to that store and try and buy a cheap mask. He probably would have made a cool mask and it would have never looked the same. They would have overthought it. They yeah. would have overproduced it and it wouldn't have been the same. It's just this magic concoction of fate and just on the fly, creative filmmaking, kind of just doing it as we're going. We got to figure it out as quickly as possible. It's just all these things just factored in. John Carpenter doing the music, creating that score because they had such a low budget, not planning on doing it at all. Like so many things factoring into making this the most memorable horror movie of all time. And then with the face of Michael Myers, you, we see his real face in this film. And if I remember correctly, I might be wrong. I might be thinking of Jason, but I think that you, we, you see his face in a couple of the sequels and it's deformed or like very scary or burnt or something. I think so. If I remember, I might be wrong. I might be thinking of Jason. However, Jason's face is fucked up, Yeah, bro. so that's <laughs> fucked up for sure from the swamp. <laughs> like yeah. When he comes, up, <laughs> <laughs> he comes out of the water, it's fucked up. But in this film, we see his face, and he's just a normal guy. He's just like a 21-year-old guy. However, for years after Halloween was released, people would tell John Carpenter how horrified they were by Michael Myers' grotesquely disfigured face, which they glimpsed when Laurie pulled the mask off for a moment within the closet. But all they saw, however was the ordinary face of actor Tony Morin playing the lead role. So his face wasn't deformed, it's just a it's just a guy. Just a guy, man. Perfectly normal except for the small knife wound inflected by Lori during their struggle in the closet, which was created using makeup. It's just a little, a little scratch. Carpenter cites this example as evidence of the power of suggestion in cinema that the audience saw a monster on screen, so they assumed that he must look like a monster underneath the mask. That's pretty great stuff, man. That's pretty great stuff. How about we use that interesting point that you just brought up <laughs> and segue into our intermission? Have some fun. We'll do some superlatives. Super, I did it. Superlatives. I told you you wouldn't be able to do it. Superlatives. <laughs> superlatives. Superlatives. Oh, there we go. There superlatives we go. about the movie, like the best actor, best shot, stuff like that. I can't like wait till next time you mess it up As again. well as some movie trivia stuff. And then we'll come back and finish up our conversation about the great Halloween and before we continue, the best, best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends. It's the best way for a podcast to grow. Word of mouth, it really helps. We wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for word of mouth, but we need your help to get seen more often because the competition's just insane these days. Every goddamn fucking celebrity has a show. It's brutal. And they're all inside the TV film category. Like, who? I don't want to listen to them talk. They just, just act. That's what you got to do. <laughs> I'm being cynical, old man, but... <laughs> gotta pay the rent and <laughs> <laughs> fucking actors gotta you pay, guys don't have enough attention gotta pay for my enunciation lessons so I can say superlative better <laughs> it's gonna cost a fortune but you can also leave those five star ratings and reviews 
on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Apple, you can leave written reviews, which we love to read out on the show. I'll get to one in just a minute. And also, you can subscribe to us on patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, which is a payment form of support. We have five different tiers of membership on Patreon, and every single member gets access to two bonus episodes of the show every single goddamn week. Two bonus episodes of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, in addition to tons of other perks. For example, as you keep going up those tiers, they get better and better. $10, you get access to our Discord server. We have private watch parties on there with just the Discord community. We have conversations about all kinds of things. It's a lot of fun, great film community we've built. $25, you get a custom episode. You pick a topic and we'll do it for you. That $100 tier is the ultimate package, though. You become an executive producer at the end credit of every main episode. Private watch party. You come on the show after a few, after three months of being in this tier, as well as free merch. So many perks. I can't, I don't have time to name them off, Anthony. We have to get Too going. Perks. We have to get going to the intermission. Wrap but, it up. But there's so many perks in that one. But thank you to everyone who is a patron. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. There'll be a link in the episode description below. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our great friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. It's a great gift for the movie lover in your life, as well as a great way for you to deck your place out with a bunch of movie posters to express your love and passion for movies. For all your Halloween posters, for all your horror movie posters, MoviePosters.com is the place to go. They also just did a movie poster contest giveaway. Congratulations to the winner. We just announced it the other day. We're going to do another giveaway next week, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. Awesome. Now let's get into our intermission. So we go with the intermission trivia stuff and then get to superlatives to segue back into the episode, you think? Sounds lovely. Let's do it like that. Sounds we, lovely. It's different than what we did last episode. Yeah. yeah. But I think it'll flow better. James has been losing sleep over that. <laughs> I was up all night. I'm like, did we mess up the order last time? How should we structure the episode? Oh, I'm so stressed out. I haven't eaten in an hour. Moving on to our movie quote competition. That is a long time for you. <laughs> it is a pretty long time for me, to be honest. I ate right before we filmed which is my fourth meal of the day. Movie quote competition. You ready? Ready. So this is two characters. So we just going to ignore the bear then? It's a bear. <laughs> Midsummer. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. If you want justice, go to a whorehouse. If you want to get fucked, go to court. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line, man. What fucking movie is this? Oh, my God. I'll give you a hint. It's a courtroom movie. I figured. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> so revealing. <laughs> Riveting. Uh, I don't know. Primal Fear. Richard Gere. Richard Gere, guy. Richard Gere, kid. Richard Gere. That's a good movie. Oh, yeah. That's a good... If you've never seen awesome. that movie, whew, It's wicked awesome. Blow your hair back, kid. Whatever blows your hair back. <laughs> people and your books. Get all these books and the wrong fucking books. How many times do we quote Goodwill? How many times do we quote Matt Damon movies on the show? Quite a lot. Ripley, Jason Bourne, Ripley. Between Ripley and Goodwill Hunting, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a good cut. You know how fucking easy this is for me? This is a fucking joke. <laughs> now I come in here and watch you screw it up. All right, moving on to our movie release here. Anthony, 
and listeners, what year did Hocus Pocus come out? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck is not the correct answer. Would you like to guess again? 1996. 1993. No, that was pretty close. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty close. close. Pretty close. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It's a banger. Watched it last year. Yeah, you gave it one star. No, I gave the sequel one star. Okay. The oh, sequel that's is right. bad. That's right. I mean, when... 20% of your movie takes place in a Walgreens. Does it really spend that much time in a Walgreens Bro, store? it's shocking how much time. I, I'm guessing Walgreens funded some of the movie <laughs> for Disney, but, like, holy shit. Why were they there? Were they getting it was. Stuff? It started off as, like, a joke. Like, they're witches. They can't figure out, like, an automatic door and stuff like that. And they were getting face cream. Just walk up to it. They're getting face <laughs> cream because, like, they didn't want to get... They want, didn't want to get older, but there's this, like, new magic to get rid of wrinkles and stuff like that. It's just... It started, like, on paper, it seems like a good joke, but uh-huh. execution-wise, I was just like, nah. Sounds terrible. But it just it was drawn out so much. Yeah, you gave it one star in Letterboxd. That movie was not good, I'm sorry. And I like the first one. It's a classic, hey, Halloween. Don't apologize, it's a classic man. Halloween movie. I don't think anyone gave it a good review, really. I like the first film. That's why I put it here. All right, what year did Primal Fear come out? 1990. Six. Yes. <laughs> I shouldn't have said 96. <laughs> That's what I was thinking anyways. <laughs> it helped. It egged you in that direction. Uh, a bit of an egg. Like, Well, I knew it was in 95. I knew it was in 94. Why? Because 94 we've done. No, why grace, not 95? Grace years of cinema. Because we've talked about like years of 1995 too. Yeah, we have. <laughs> Dabbled. <laughs> we've never talked about 1995. Well, I mean. My... Never in my life have we talked about the, the year of 1995. When we talked about heat. So? Yeah. <laughs> I mean the year. It's, it's come up. It has. Listen, I got it right, and I know you're just surprised. <laughs> how did you How did you get that right, Jim? How did you get that? Did you look at my Google Doc? <laughs> Fucking, can't believe it. Getting grilled over here. <laughs> get one correct answer. Bullshit. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry, man. No, it's you okay. earned that right. Thank you. You earned that correct answer. <laughs> I earned the correct answer. All right, let's move on to movie pop quiz time. Anthony and listeners... Who wrote and directed, give everyone a chance, A Nightmare on Elm Street? Okay, you can go ahead. Wes Craven. Wes Craven is great. Wes Craven, yeah. I don't know why I whispered it. Yeah. <laughs> Wes Craven. Taste the rainbow. Skittles. <laughs> Taste the rainbow. What's that from? Skittles. <laughs> no, no, it's like it said with jokes. Someone's like, Taste the rainbow. Oh. Um, you know what I mean? So it's in a movie. Uh, whatever, it's too late. I've read it in, in a, a book. book. <laughs> that should happen, you know. It's me taking the bull by the horns. <laughs> I like to make the brain man sweat. <laughs> you reading the dictionary? <laughs> Got me. Busted. <laughs> Wait, Goodman's. We should. We should meet. I mean, date. <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. Nobody. All right, this is Blaze. No, Laser. Blazer. Taser. <laughs> I think it's Laser, Blaze, then Blazer. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> All right, here's my quiz question. How many Wes Anderson films has Edward Norton acted in? Edward Norton in Wes... That's a good question. I'm going to say three. Five films. Wow, okay, so can I guess them? 
Uh, if you want, yeah, sure. <laughs> you don't have to ask for my permission. No, I mean, like, go ahead. As a fun part of this, I got it. Question. Yeah, have you had that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you may answer. You, you may <laughs> list them off. Actually, no, I don't want to. Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> yes. Grand Budapest. Uh huh. <laughs> um, French Dispatch. Yes. As well as I haven't seen the shorts. So I don't even know if he's in the shorts. Not in the shorts. I gotta watch those. I keep hearing they're really good. Um. Um, what? I'm blanking. Asteroid City. Asteroid City! Fuck. And Isle of Dogs. It's okay. Five. Which dog is he in Isle of Dogs? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What was the first one? First what? What was the first one? The first movie that he was in? Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Great job, man. Thanks. <laughs> Even though you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I it only like, named three out of five. The thing, the thing Actually, was, it was an okay job. <laughs> I got 60, 60%. That's an F. <laughs> no, it's a D. 60% is an F. 60 is a D. Hold on. Oh, yeah, you're right. 70s is a C. 60s is D. D's get degrees, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't pass high school. They get to, Yes, they do. These do you not understand what the difference between a D and an F is? You can't. Wait, can you pass high you school with You can pass D? high school with D's. Not saying you should, but you can. Damn. You can get D's a... and pat. Like, D's get degrees. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, as long as you don't fail. It's the GPA, th- GPA was suck dick, though. Yeah, I'm not going to... You're not going to... Ha- you're going to be like a 1-4. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're going to get... A 1. You're going to get into, like, Starbucks Community College, but, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's a trade school. <laughs> you're going to no, you're gonna get into Trump University. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> But no, oh you, you, yeah, D is not a fail, man. It's not good. <laughs> like, like, don't get a D. Don't Stu- get, study don't hard, get, kids. Yeah, don't get D. Study. <laughs> don't study hard. Just study. Study. Do something. <laughs> just, just do a little bit. But um, yeah. Let's move on to who we got for haters this week. Any unsubscribes, Anthony? What are we cooking with? Oh yeah, we got some. So we got uh, Stephen wrote in our. We <laughs> I made a video of we put do not for the dogs who were house sitting. And then um, Steven wrote, no cuddling with dogs while watching Dune. Unsubscribe. It's brutal. <laughs> also, a lot of people are like, why are those dogs in the kennels? So the kennels, they were in their cages. We were about to leave the house, so we were putting a movie on for them to yeah. be entertained. Yeah. All right? We weren't, we don't and also, just... we, were following, we were following the instructions of their owners. Yes, we don't, just, we don't just keep them in cages all day. Also, I like the cute name kennel instead of what it really is, is a cage. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a cage. <laughs> People just don't like the term cage, so they came up with kettle. Yeah, it's absolutely right. It's a right. kettle. What the fuck's a kettle? He's absolutely correct. It's a nice word for cage. Smaller cage. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a cage. It's, um... It's you know it's a it's a metal frame that keeps them trapped. Six walls <laughs> of steel. <laughs> Next up, Dusty Rhodes wrote um, about our about Midnight Ruin. He said, "Release the tutorial or I'll unsubscribe." He means like uh, behind the scenes stuff. Oh, okay. So BTS. Should, yeah, BTS. Gotcha. We'll do that. And then again in the Dune Dog video. <laughs> Joshua Setledge wrote, "How dare you keep that bu- that good boy in a brutal Harkonnen cage?" <laughs> Unsubscribed. And then I replied, "I know the devotees. They're brutal, brutal. They're not human." <laughs> this might be the best new inside joke. <laughs> I was cackling. That was funny as hell, man. <laughs> That's really funny. You don't know devotees like I do. They're brutal. <laughs> They're not human. 
<laughs> All right, that's it for our unsubscribes. We have a great five-star review from Derek. These Bostonians make my day. I've been listening to these guys for like three years, kid. Oh, wow, Derek. I'm going Bostonian for you. <laughs> I love listening to them talk about movies they love and also the ones they don't like. <laughs> they help me get through long work days and never fail to make me crack up and look insane to my coworkers. Give it a listen. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Derek. That's Appreciate awesome. you so much. That was a great review. It's a wicked awesome review, guy. Wicked pissa, dude. Now, Anthony, what is your streaming recommendation for this episode? I recommend Snowpiercer. It's on Amazon Prime. June Ho, baby. Oh, yeah. I recommend watching V for Vendetta. It's on Max, and I'm recommending it because the 5th of November is coming up, and, you know, Raiders of the Lost Podcast might be doing an episode on the Monday right after, on November 6th. So, I highly recommend getting your homework done. It's a great one. It's so good. The 5th of November. Now, let's get into our superlatives. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he failed again. Superla superlatives. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, <laughs> I spent, in my head, you, you see that the you, gear's you, working you, in my eyes? You froze, <laughs> and then you looked at me in a, mo <laughs> a second of panic in your face. You were like, just like, <laughs> you, like, died. You, like your, your head just like exploded inside. You're like, uh. <laughs> I literally, my brain Super was like, latches. just get something out and maybe. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll sound right. Oh my god, it's so funny. <laughs> superlatives. All right, moving into the superlatives. Who is the MVP of Halloween? JC. And I don't mean Jesus Christ. I mean John <laughs> John Carpenter. You've referenced Jesus Christ in like four episodes straight. JC, baby. <laughs> You're <not> even religious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool guy. But uh, John Carpenter, <laughs> I mean, he did everything. I agree. I also put John Carpenter. Because, I mean, he wrote, directed, uh, was the creative vision, did the music. I mean, it's his baby. It's about as hands-on as a director can be. And he did an incredible job in this movie's. Obviously, we're still talking about it 45 years later. We're still talking about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Best actor. Best actor, Jamie Lee Curtis. I also put Jamie Lee Curtis... She's like the only yeah. like <laughs> the guy who plays uh, uh, Doctor Loomis. Loomis is great. Yeah. Um, Paul, I mean, what's this fucking? He was in uh, Donald Pleasance. He was in The Great Escape. He plays the forger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got uh, twenty five thousand dollars for like three days of filming on this. It was four days of filming. Four days. Get your facts straight. Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a funny story about him I found. So let's hear it, man. <laughs> Shut yeah, up. I can't wait to laugh at this story. <laughs> so, I'm so excited. You're such a jerk. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, where is it? Sorry, one sec. <laughs> I know James is gonna say something really wise right now. I'm trying not to spit out my water. <laughs> uh, fuck. Where is it? Well, anyways, I remember it. What? I'll laugh, and then <laughs> we can edit it in. You can edit I'll do a new edit. <laughs> right, ready, everyone? <laughs> that was such a funny story, Anthony. You sound like a crazy person. <laughs> so, uh, Donald Pleasance. Well, <laughs> he's a very... So he's, on, let, me, let me get into the story. Very respected actor in some great, iconic films. I mean, he was in The Great Escape. That was... The film of the year that year came out, and of that decade, what was it? 78? No, no, not seventy. It was like seventy-two, something like that. It's pretty early. Yeah. Um, so they he actually wanted John Carpenter wanted a bigger name, but he could he settled for Donald Pleasance, like you said, paid him twenty five thousand for four days of work. So Donald Pleasance was just like, "Fuck it, I'm getting paid." And he said to John, he said to John Carpenter, 
he took this job because he has to pay alimony to his wife <laughs> and because his daughter is in a rock band in London and said that you made cool music for your last movie, Assault on Precinct 13. So that's why I that's took cool. this, that's why I took this job. Um, and then Carpenter and he ended up bonding and had a great time working together. And Pleasance actually appeared in two other John Carpenter films. Um, however, I think he was going through a rough patch in his life because so the scene, the, op- the opening scene of him driving the car with the nurse to the hospital, um, before they shot that scene, the crew said that he put down two bottles of wine. <laughs> and they were worried that it w- he wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, but he ended up doing the scene perfectly, and they were shocked and just elated that he pulled it off. Damn. <laughs> I got to watch that scene again. Two bottles of wine for one person in like, one sitting? Purple lips in that scene? <laughs> I know. His teeth must be red in that scene. Yeah, check it I out. See it again. He nails that scene. Yeah, he's great. Damn. That's great. I mean, holy shit. <laughs> All right. Who, what is the best line in Halloween? All right. My best line from Halloween is when Rack and Loomis walk into the Myers house for the first time after they come to Haddonfield and, you know, Loomis is dragging Bracket around saying that Michael's going to start killing people in this town. And they go to their house. The Myers house is abandoned. It's been for years, but Michael was inside earlier in the morning, obviously when he saw Lori. And they notice it's been broken into, and then they see on the kitchen floor, they stop. We don't see it as the audience, but the actors and characters react to a dead dog on the ground. And Brackett's disturbed, and he says, a man wouldn't do that. Because he's like, there's no way that someone's been here. Like, a man wouldn't do that. And then Loomis like, this isn't a man. He got hungry. <laughs> exactly. exactly. This isn't a man. Can I, can I say the fucking line? <laughs> you, said, you did say it. <laughs> well, you said <laughs> I said it after you said you lied. <laughs> I don't know. I have to check the time on that. I didn't stop you last like like you, like you did last time. <laughs> I didn't say the line for you. <laughs> that that might have happened. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I before I get into my line, we had one more hater. It's a real hater. Oh. A hater of you. Of me? Yeah. Of moi? <laughs> Believe it or not. But why? <laughs> Believe it or not. Why though? So you posted a video on TikTok talking about uh, an anonymous moviegoer suing Warner Brothers for emotional damage due to Warner Brothers delaying the release of Dune Part Two, saying that they had nothing else to look forward to for the year. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a joke that it was you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, did, I made a selfie video saying it and wasn't then, uh, me, but it might have been me. Yeah. And then some guy on TikTok wrote, "Are you really a fan, or have you just been told you're supposed to like Dune?" Yeah. What a fucking asshole. You I literally have, have a, a tattoo. tattoo. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I just I bought the books just to look at them. You I just want to be cool, so I like Dune. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's like? That's not a cool thing to do. It's not. Not it's even. Not. That. It's, yeah. It's incredibly dorky to read five Dune books. Is not a cool thing. It's it's a very hey, hey you're cool you are cool man thanks you're what cool what a guy. fucking asshole yeah I thought it was funny what a loser it's like Star Wars fans hate themselves and other Star Wars fans like Dune fans like so many of them they're so pretentious they can be yeah because it's like the the intelligent person Star Wars is what people call it but I think that the, a lot of the fans for the Dune universe are very pretentious really yeah dude the the comments we've gotten on their videos is it because they've been like big fans of the books for a long time and people haven't recognized it until recently I wouldn't say that it's just that they're complex books they're not easy reads so I understand like people who are diehard fans and they like hold it so close to their chest and they're very protective of it but still like. Just ease the fuck up. Yeah. Like, chill out, dude. It's a movie, guys. <laughs> like, I remember <laughs> when we made our first Dune 2021 review, uh-huh. and we got a hater on YouTube that was, like, a Dune expert. He kept, he, like, tried to uh, fact check us on a bunch of things, and one of them was the way we pronounced Fremen. Which, oh, yeah, I remember that. He's like, no, it's pronounced Freeman. I'm, and then when the movie came out, finally, because we didn't hear the word Fremen in the trailer. This is, we did a preview. 
They didn't say Fremen in the trailer, but that's how I've always pronounced it from reading the books. Yeah. It's Fremen. It's fucking pretty clear. It's one E. It's not Freeman. It's Fremen. And then this guy, and this is before the movie came out. We did that preview, and he did all these fact check things on because I was explaining things from Dune. And remember, we were like previewing like oh, yeah, yeah. terms. Yeah. And then I, after the movie came out, I found that comment, and I was like, I was waiting for this movie to come out <laughs> so I could prove you wrong that it's pronounced Fremen. Idiot, motherfucker! It was like so rewarding. That was back when you used to stitch people sometimes on TikTok. Eh. Yeah, you used, you used to stitch back to them. Sometimes, yeah, I stopped doing that. But that was that, that one. That's the rare time I've like done that. Like gone and find a comment of some guy like, pissed me for off, it. and I was waiting for the movie to come out to get confirmation that it was pronounced. <laughs> You're like Fremen. Steve Buscemi in in uh in what's it called Billy Madison? <laughs> he had a hit list. <laughs> <laughs> You're like putting makeup on. You... Well, I'm glad I called that guy. <laughs> that was you about that guy with the comment. Yeah, I just want to say I'm like sorry for all the things I said to. You. Oh man, it's cool. <laughs> he just thumbs up him. <laughs> Amazing. All right. But that's what I mean. Like, they're so pretentious. Like, you don't even know the facts about the facts you think you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Anyways, back to the line. My my best line. <laughs> I didn't expect that to take an hour. It didn't take an hour. <laughs> it feels like it. You got somewhere to be? Yeah, I got to get to my line. It's 3.50 on Monday. Got to get to my best line of Halloween. After that, what do you... One day, I hope I get to say the line. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I'll get to the point in my life where I can save my favorite line from Halloween. No, man. You gotta wait. Wait your turn. I had to tell my anecdote. <laughs> I regret bringing that hater up. I'm just kidding. It's a funny story. All right. My favorite line of Halloween is... Was it as funny as the story you told earlier? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It was very funny. It was pretty funny. Anyways... <laughs> So to my line, <laughs> my favorite line. I guess. Just let me say I'm it. <laughs> oh, I love you. Compose myself. <laughs> okay, you can say it. Uh. <laughs> All right, my favorite line from Halloween. Finally, <laughs> we, we made it. <laughs> so it's about to come out. So in the, in the first act of the movie. <laughs> Just say it, man. Just get it out. It's your turn. Uh, Laurie runs into Bracket, the cop. Uh, jump scare. And he goes, it's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. It's a good line. Good line. I'm glad that I finally got to say it. <laughs> All right. What's the best scene of Halloween? I think the opening long take of Michael killing his sister. It's incredible. You know what? I got to agree with you. That's what I picked as well. The opening... POV scene, like we mentioned earlier, is the best piece of filmmaking in the whole movie. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And it's just fucking strong opening, man. So good. All right, what's your uh, streaming recommendation? Oh, you missed best shot. Best shot? What's the best shot, Jim? So my best shot is when Michael kills Bob. Now he comes out of the closet when Bob is looking around for a beer, right? And he grabs Bob by the throat, lifts him in the air with two hands, and strangles him. Then he takes his knife and just st- stakes him to the wall mm-hmm. with the knife and lets it and lets Bob die and just flail like his body's just hanging and then Michael like looks at him and like twists his head sideways like out of curiosity and it's a great kind of side silhouette shot of them with the light pouring in from the moon my favorite shot is probably when the girls are walking uh, through the neighborhood and Michael just appears at the edge of the bushes i think that's a great shot it's it's very scary it's very scary because we don't even know 
I mean, we know what he's capable of, but he hasn't killed yet. He, it's actually a while until he f- kills the first person, because one of the strengths of the film is that... Well, that we see him kill. Yes. Because he technically kills somebody on the, the way. He kills a mechanic. That's where he gets the outfit. But John Carpenter plays with the audience a couple of times, especially with the laundry room scene of the girl going into the laundry room and then getting locked and then having to climb through the window. We're just like, he's setting up all these possible kill moments and he doesn't even do it. He's just like messing with the audience. He's like, I'm going to set up a scene where they think he's going to show up and kill her multiple times. It doesn't happen. And so I really like that scene because she's like stuck in the window with her foot stuck in like the table. <laughs> it's like ideal situation for, for someone to kill her. And yet not, nothing happens. And he constantly, with scenes like that, is putting the audience on edge and showing that like he's going to set it up, but he's not going to deliver to make us guess when things are going to happen. And it's become a trope, you could say, of these moments where you think someone's going to get killed. We might as well segue in because that's the end of the superlatives. Superlatives. Yeah, I said it right. You're, I mean, it's okay. I'm on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where... The trope of someone not getting killed where they should be getting killed, or you're waiting for it to come, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> <laughs> is that how you're waving your hands, waiting for it to come? The murder to happen, <laughs> waiting for the murder to happen, the execution with the large knife to kill somebody. That's what we're waiting for it to happen. <laughs> no, at least specific now. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, and it's brilliant because it adds that suspense. Mixed in with the slow walking, the following, the voyeuristic, which everyone obviously makes the joke of Mike Myers just gently walking and striding along while Laurie can just sprint and escape. It had suspense, and it's at the time was awesome, and I think it still works so well with this movie, but it's become a trope that I think might be overdone. That's when people get annoyed with it, but this is like the OG version of that. There's one, th- there's one thing that annoys me with this movie. Um, I understand it happening once. However, it happens twice, and that's Laurie incapacitating Michael and then dropping the knife right at his right right next to his body. The second time she like throws it and <laughs> she might as well place it in his hand. Like <laughs> dead corpse here, take the knife back. So I get the first time she stabs him in the neck with the fucking whatever the needle, the the yeah, the sewing the thing. Sewing, yeah, yeah, needle. Yeah. Crocheting. Sorry, it's um knitting, knitting. Knitting needle. Knitting needle. Whatever. It's a needle. She stabs him in the neck with it and then he like passes out. And then she takes the knife and she's like scared of the knife, so then she drops the knife and runs away. I get I get that. Shock. Shock. It's like, oh my god, I just gotta get out of here. I get it. But the second time where she, she pokes him in the eye with the coat hanger, and then she stabs him in the chest with a knife. And then he, he collapses onto the floor uh, beside the bed, uh, unmoving. And then <laughs> she comes out of the closet with the knife. And then she's like, okay, I gotta get out of here. Let me just drop the knife right next to him. <laughs> throws, throws it at him. She, like, throws it at him and then takes off. And I was like... No, she doesn't take off. Oh, yeah. She just... She cowers into the doorway, turns her back to him... And tells the kids and to go get crying. help. And then she tells the kids to go get help, facing the doorway still, facing the hallway, not looking behind her for, like, a whole minute. And you're he, like, Laurie, look the fuck behind he you. He already came back from get something. Get the fuck out. There, but I think I think Carver does it on purpose. I think he's doing it on purpose. He's messing with the audience. He wants you to fucking, us crazy. He wants you to go crazy. He wants you to screaming at the screen when yeah. you're watching it at TV on TV at home. But like in the theater, you're probably just like on the edge of your seat. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You idiot! Get the fuck out of there! <laughs> stab him! Just fucking stab the shit out! Cut his fucking head off! Cut his head off! <laughs> James is like, cut his face off! <laughs> <laughs> Wear it! Wear his face! 
face. Get, take his nose right off. <laughs> Eat it. <laughs> I mean, this is what I would do. It's totally normal. What's he going to do without a nose? <laughs> Can't possibly kill you without a nose. He's going to be too busy looking for his nose. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah, when you watch the movie, it's like, Laurie, take the knife with you. Get out of the fucking house. It's pretty funny. Yeah, but they do a great job with the suspense. And also, they only had so many locations, tight budget, tight schedule. We can't – she has to go back to the house. They they probably could only do so much with what they had to work with. Yeah, I mean, there's – then they have the two houses are across the street from each yeah. other. So you got to do it with – work with what you got. But also – the long take filmography in this movie, outside of just that opening long take and the opening credits, there's a ton of long takes that work so well in this movie. And they're actually some pretty complicated ones with like Michael driving, the back seat, like following the little kid. Was it little Tommy? When the ki the kids bully him, they knock his pumpkin down, and then Mike's just stalking him, and he follows little Mikey down the street and t around the corner. It's like a minute and a half Inside long the shot. Car. Yeah, it's really yeah. cool. I think there's there's a lot of great long takes in this movie. Well, that John just Carpenter's set that tone. a great director. He's he's been he's always been a fantastic director, and that's why the thing is so great. Speaking of the thing, my favorite part of the movie, I always forget that he has about a minute and a half of screen time of the thing from outer space in this movie. The thing from another world. The thing from another world. Um, just playing on TV on multiple screens. The kids are watching it, and it's just so funny to see this because I'm sure making the thing was always a dream of his and he ended up doing it and that's why he didn't do the sequel to Halloween because he did thing he did the thing but man to see like the opening credit title sequence of that film with the thing title just bursting onto the screen from the backlight and then also sequences like the scientists finding the saucer and stuff it's just like it's so amazing to see how influential the thing was on John Carpenter and how much he loved it that he put it into this movie. So much so to me, I mean, it takes up a chunk of screen time showing this, the thing in this movie. That's how much he adores it. And then being able to make that movie only a few years later, I'm sure, I mean, what a thing for the filmmaker to be able to pull off. Quite the thing. Quite the thing. Quite the thing to do. The original came out in 1951. Huh. And it's kind of like a a classic Hollywood monster flick in a lot of ways. Like, it's just like a guy with prosthetics and a suit versus what he did with the 1982 version of The Thing, which is one of the best horror movies ever made. And I think that's an awesome thing that he got to do. It's not. It's a little different than when Chris Nolan made, made Following and one of the apartment doors had a Batman sticker on it. Like, Chris Nolan was not a well-known director at all. It's his first project he made on $10,000. He didn't, like, foreshadow, yeah. like, I'm going to make a Batman movie someday. This was kind of like you could say like more of a tease of like not only do I love the thing, I'm doing this very much on purpose, putting this in the movie for a minute and a half. But, I mean, maybe he used it as like, dude, let me make the thing remake. The Batman one was just an accident. Yeah, it was he just said, on that door. He said that, he said that there was a Batman symbol on his friend's apartment door. It was just there. It was just there, man. Crazy. But Mike Myers, what a character they came up with, born evil. Mike Myers actually didn't speak a line of dialogue until 2007 in Rob Zombie's Halloween, fun fact. And 12 actors have played Mike Myers in 13 movies, including some of the crew even filling in for <laughs> scenes. So if you count them, it's up to 16. And six people actually played Mike Myers in the original film Halloween, and even Deborah Hill, the writer and producer. So... In the original Halloween movie released in 1978, Michael Myers was actually played by six actors. As a young child, obviously, in the beginning of the movie, Michael is played by Will Sandon. 
In the first-person camera sequence, when the young Michael takes a knife from the kitchen and goes upstairs to kill Judith, Michael's hand that comes on screen to take that knife was actually played by Deborah Hill, the co-writer and producer. Adult Michael Myers, or the shape as he was listed in the credits, was portrayed mostly by Nick Castle in all the scenes where the masked killer is stalking about. However, when Michael Myers is briefly unmasked by Laurie Strode, the bare-faced Michael was Tony Morin. In addition, scenes in which Michael was required to break through barriers were performed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Since he had created many of the props used on the film, he knew the best way to destroy them. Finally, from Michael's climactic fall from the bedroom terrace, stuntman James Winburn donned the Michael Myers mask to perform the maneuver. That's awesome. So cool, like, to have the crew involved, because it's low budget, and another great fact about it being low budget is all of the actors wore their own clothing for their roles. I don't know. And since there was no money for a costume department, Jamie Lee Curtis actually went to a local JCPenney and bought all of Laurie Strode's wardrobe herself. She spent less than... $100 for the entire set. She used, I think she wears three outfits in the course of the film. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so the first outfit at school, second outfit um, at home, and then she changes into her night outfit for the rest of the film. For babysitting. Yeah. And then, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, everyone knows her mother was Janet Lee from Psycho, and Deborah Hill was quoted saying, I knew casting Jamie Lee would be great publicity for the film because her mother was in Psycho, so it's one of the major factors for how she got her role as Laurie Strode. And the name Laurie Strode was based on one of Carpenter's ex-girlfriends, apparently. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just <laughs> terrific in this movie. She's really great. She's got it. In- Does that mean he wanted to kill her? <laughs> That's a good Kill point. her for breaking up with him? <laughs> That's a good point. Um, and this is actually Jamie Lee Curtis's feature film debut as well. Wow. She was in a TV show um, before this. Yeah. And she actually, Jamie Lee Curtis, was so disappointed with her own performance that she became convinced she would be fired after the first day of filmmaking. However, when her phone rang that night and it was John Carpenter on the phone, even though she was certain it was the end of her career, instead, Carpenter called to congratulate her and tell her that he was very happy with the way things had gone. The fact that she was Jantley's mother probably didn't hurt, though. Also, she wasn't his first choice, so according to Deborah Hill, Jamie Lee Curtis was the second choice. His first choice was from an actor who was the daughter of a member of the Lassie cast. So I guess it's always just been nepotism. <laughs> nepotism. <laughs> nepotism. 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 The daughter of Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great performer. She only barks, but, you know, she barks her ass off. She can bark in Spanish. It's great. <laughs> but um, I think Halloween also aesthetically has one of the best horror posters of all time. It's great because it's obviously... The hand wielding the knife, which is blended into the evil jack-o'-lantern, but also the guy who designed this poster. There's, in the knuckles of the hand holding the knife, an open-faced man screaming with his mouth open. Really? It's really interesting. He said that he didn't plan on doing it, but while he was designing it, he kind of realized that he created an open-faced mouth screaming person inside the knuckles of the hand holding the knife. And then it's it's pretty airy, so then he's like, if oh, I, tr- whoa, if I yeah. tried to do it, I couldn't have done it. But it was just sort of like an evil, sinister accident. I never noticed that because, yeah, he, it looks like he shadowed it on the left side of the hand to really make the face out Yeah, with deep shadows. Whoa, that's crazy. I never noticed that. It's a legendary poster. It's, it's up face. there. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing poster. It's just really fantastic. I love it. It's an amazing movie, and Halloween's iconic, and we love this movie. It's one of my annual watches for spooky season. Got to get this in every single year. 
And I, f- I mean, it's a- everything about it, man. I love it. Even the campiness, even the stuff that ticks people off that you're like screaming to the TV. I screamed at the TV three times, but it was fun. Like I had a fun time screaming. I'm like, I'm like get the fuck out of there, Laurie! But it's I know- fun to watch yeah. with people. Yeah, it's, it's a good a gr- watch. It's a great watch with people. Absolutely. Like yeah. I would love to do one of those outdoor movies with Halloween. Oh yeah, that that would be a fun experience. We had a we put our projector on the wall and it was like a 90 inch screen. Bro, that was si- no, it was, it was like 110. It was crazy. Man. It was awesome. It was huge. I hadn't done that yet. It was massive. It, it looked really good. Yeah. But I had a blast. And, I mean, we know this is going to get turned into a verse very soon. Multiple shows and movies for sure. And I think you brought up Season of the Witch Halloween 3. That would be something they'd use as a problem. The cult will definitely off. be something. Because yeah. Season of the Witch, it's, it's an anthology of short stories. So probably using characters from that or just making new characters based off Season of the Witch, making a horror anthology and then just going in that direction that's probably what i'm assuming they're going to do in addition to new michael myers led halloween movies yeah i mean maybe they'll be good we'll see you can't get much worse than the new ones you can't so evil you can dies only, tonight right. evil, evil dies, dies tonight. tonight you can only go up from there so hey that's the bright side you can only go up bro i'm sorry i love laurie as a character but when she gets stabbed brutally with that huge knife and then is walking around the hospital like three that hours night. later after sur- after serious intestinal surgery, come on, <laughs> I love her, but like that's that Man, makes no sense. Everything in the hospital was just ridiculous. Yeah, the hospital sequences were not great. But this guy keeps making horror movies now. <laughs> I bet they'll get a cool director for the Miramax one. I think so too. Yeah, I hope so. But you got anything else on Halloween? Halloween's awesome, man. It's iconic. It's um, I said it. Um, the other night when we put it on, I was like, it's like the, it's the first, like, it's like the ultimate independent film. Yeah. In terms of its success. It's success and how it was made. You know what I mean? It really is. I mean, you, on a budget of 300000 grossing 70 mil, 20-day shoot, absolutely insane. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nuts. Great. It's bonkers. Not to mention just, it might be the most successful independent film of all time, not just box office-wise, but the legendary status. And absolutely. still going, it might be the most successful independent it's film. It's become one of the biggest brands in film history, without a doubt. It probably, yeah. I would classify that then. Yeah, man. Think of all of the times it's been watched. It's and all the posters, all the costumes. Think about all the costumes. Not to mention, you know, the VHSs you wore, you wore out as a kid. I watched it 17 times. You watched Airheads and Halloween back-to-back <laughs> every night. For, all for all night. <laughs> it's on repeat. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Halloween. Happy Halloween to everyone. Today's the 30th, but tomorrow's Halloween. So have a great time. Send us pictures of your costumes and everything. We'd love to see what you're dressing up as. Have a safe night. Eat your candy. Have, have some good time at the parties and everything you know, to go to. We did, if you were tuned in with us, we yes. had our streamathon yesterday on Twitch. It was the first time we ever did that. That's but, when we, we're not dressed up today because we dressed up for that. Yeah. Well, I wore a Lost Boys t-shirt. It's not dressed up. I mean, it's, it's just a shirt, man. It's, it's fucking spooky. Is that a costume? It's fucking David screaming with his fangs out. Is it a costume? It's not a costume, but it's right, a spooky so you shirt. You didn't dress up. You just wore a t-shirt. <laughs> All right. Well, here, this is my hand. Shut up. It's an evil hand. Anyways. That was fun. The stream with that was great. I'm sure we'll do another one soon, but it was a good test run. It was, it was a blast. For, so thanks for tuning in if you join us for that at any point of the 12-hour day of watching horror movies. Take care, everybody. Again, share us with your family and friends who love horror, who love movies. It's the best way for Raiders of the Lost podcast to grow organically. Leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple and become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Take care, everybody. Happy Halloween.
This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.